Hallelujah. Surely the highest of praise should be reserved for He who is high above any other. So far exalted above the earth is our Lord Jesus that this world and its kingdoms and its claim to authority, power, glory, dominion is nothing but a footstool for the Almighty. So high above the earth is our Lord that He created it. So high above the earth is our Lord that He maintains it by the word of His power. So high above the earth is our Lord that in Him, though the grass withers, the flowers fade, and the things of this material realm fade and die subject to the fall, in Him, nevertheless, is power to redeem and to grant unto those who but cling to the cross of Christ eternal life. And so high is our Lord above the earth, He has the power to remake it again in His image so that those who place their faith and trust in Him will join Him in perfect communion one day, reconciled in the sanctuary of fellowship in the new heaven and new earth, worshiping the Lamb who was slain to make it possible, and declaring with words similar to what we sung today, Our God is worthy of praise. Our Lord Jesus Christ is exalted above the earth. It is His throne, and this earth is His footstool. And our Lord Jesus Christ receives as His inheritance every kingdom of this world. And our Lord Jesus Christ is proceeding to reign until the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And He reigns indeed, uncontested, forever without end. To the praise of the name of Jesus Christ, we announce, we proclaim that His kingdom has come and His will is being accomplished in this earth as it is in heaven, even as we pray for the same. That that would be true in our lives and in our testimony and our faith. Father, we pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to advance your church, to equip us to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, and King. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what an honor, what a gift, what a privilege. And I hope you're as thankful for it as ever, perhaps more so today, as we grow in Christ to realize what a gift it is to be able to open the Scriptures together and to worship in the assembly of the Beloved. Turn with me, if you would, in your Scriptures to Psalm 111. Psalm 111 is our psalm in our Psalm a Month series. We've been making some progress in over the years, which brings us to this acrostic psalm, which we'll mention what that is in a minute. Under this title, the title of my message today is Holy and Awesome. This title, these two descriptive phrases, these two adjectives come from Psalm 111, verse 9, wherein the verse closes stating, Holy and awesome is His name. Whose name, you ask? The name of our Lord, Yahweh. Verse 111, or chapter, or, uh, 111 1 tells us as much. So let us consider today how holy or how the Lord is holy and awesome. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glories of Yahweh, commanding the praise of His creation, and specifically commanding the praise of you and I, His redeemed, if you are in Him today. Holy and awesome, proclaiming the glories of our Lord, commanding the praise of His creation. As you're able, out of reverence for the Lord and His Holy Scripture, would you stand as you're able and let us hear this infallible word of the Lord in our hearing today as it is, was proclaimed in days of old and rings as true as ever in our hour. Psalm 111, 1. Praise the Lord. 
I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Verse 5, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just, and all His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Thus completes the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I mentioned a term unique to this psalm. Well, there are several others. Acrostic psalm. Psalm 111 is one of nine songs in a unique and distinguished subset called, quote, acrostic psalms. So you know what an acrostic is. You take a word, um, let's say, you know, kind of a topical or a, in topical preaching, sometimes a little clever way that someone might put together a PowerPoint or something is they'll have the word redeemed. R stands for resurrection. E stands for eternal and so forth. That's what an acrostic is. Psalm 111 is an acrostic song. It's unique and distinguished. It's in a subset of just nine in the Psalter. These poems in their original language, Hebrew, of course, are structured in alphabetical sequence. Each one or each stanza in these songs begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So if it was in English, first stanza begins with A. Second begins with B and so forth. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet make up the complete acrostic psalm of Psalm 111. Psalm 112, incidentally, is also an acrostic song. The number of true, there are perhaps a number of truths that are illustrated by this literary device. More on this in a future sermon, perhaps, but just to whet your appetite for what this literary device, this way of organizing a song, a piece of poetry, a piece of art, really, to glorify the Lord might convey. First of all, God is a God of order. There's a glorious order in the way an acrostic psalm is laid out. And it's even in, on steroids, if you will, in Psalm 119, which will be a really long song that we'll preach on a future day. We'll get there maybe this next year. In Psalm 119, there's a, quite a sophisticated order. Each section is oriented with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each section has eight parts which are also arranged in a acrostic way. Truly, these songs testify in their art form, in their literary structure, that God is a God of order. Secondly, His truth is comprehensive. From A to Z, as it were, the Bible uses similar language, drawing from the uh, illustration of alphabet, to show that God is total, comprehensive, and glorious, and nothing escapes His attention. His word is all-sufficient. In the Greek, the Bible calls Him the Alpha and Omega, which again are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. His word, thirdly, is precisely dictated. That is to say, when the scriptures were being written down, they weren't some metaphysical kind of spiritual ambiguous reality or uh, you know abstractions that were just jotted down by a guru humming a mantra with a candle like on a hill in a scratchy robe and a shaved head. 
No, the truth was precisely dictated. It was well-ordered. It was carefully crafted by the Spirit through the servants that God had chosen. And this is one way he chose to do so. And again, another thing we might learn, there is symmetry and beauty in all of God's revelation. The young people in my co-op class, we're learning uh, how to understand Scripture and we're learning some principles to do that. And one of them is, is recognizing the genre or the kind of literature that is employed. The Bible uses many different kinds of literature. And one of the unique and glorious kinds is indeed the acrostic psalm. Psalm 111 emphasizes all of these things. Indeed, the form of writing itself proclaims that holy and awesome is his name. Even the way that the ideas are arranged declare, verse 9, in as many, or in its very form. Holy and awesome is the name of the Lord. From A to Z, from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega, He is precise, He is orderly, He is symmetrical, He is beautiful, He is intentional, He is powerful, and His decree will be accomplished precisely according to His will and intentions. So as we see this, Psalm 111, by this one point of study, perhaps comes more into more bold relief as a beautiful piece of music and literature and poetry. Psalm 111 emphasizes the praiseworthiness of the one true God, known by virtue of covenant access, He is secured for His people. This would be a primary theme statement. Psalm 111 emphasizes the praiseworthiness of God. Why is God worthy of praise? Psalm 111 has many answers for us. He is the God who has allowed us Furthermore, to see his praiseworthiness by covenantal access to him. More on that in the course of this message. The glory of his covenantal revelation is evident in his magnificent works. Our glorious covenant-keeping God has magnified his name beyond special revelation, even into creation itself, and even into the ordering of the affairs of history, which are recorded to demonstrate to us that he is the author and finisher not just of his written word, but of all things that serve to give him glory. The author alludes to the Exodus deliverance as uh, an example or a paradigm for beholding and proclaiming the glory of Yahweh. We'll see reference to the example of God delivering his people from bondage to Egypt and providing for them along the way and delivering to them the promised land as manifold evidence, as obvious truth that God is glorious, holy, and awesome. Psalm 111 and 112, furthermore, are a pair. You can study this more in anticipation of next month's sermon, perhaps. Psalm 111 and 112 go together in several ways, both in form and concept. They're both, as I mentioned, acrostic psalms, which is interesting. They're kind of together in a set. They both open with this call to worship, commanding the, the singer, the reader, praise the Lord. And they, they both speak to the glory of God, but in slightly different ways. One is the glory of God revealed, manifest in his works in Psalm 111. And then Psalm 112 echoes with the glory of God changing the heart, the life, the attitude, and so forth. The effects, that is to say, of the glory of God upon the worshiper, upon the follower of Jesus, in, according to further revelation in Scripture. And this dovetails nicely with 2 Corinthians 3.18. These two psalms illustrate in literary form uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is that, uh, and just to paraphrase, and that's the verse where we look upon Christ, behold his glory, 
And in beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. So what were two songs that might illustrate that in glorious and uh, sophisticated ways? Psalm 111 and 112 are a poetic expansion, if you will, a poetic expounding, may I submit, of 2 Corinthians 3.18. Truly, they declare in so many ways, holy and awesome is our Lord. Here's a heading to organize our text today. Yahweh is famous for the following. Our Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D, and 111.1, Yahweh being transliterated, Yahweh is famous for the following. And I chose the three, four references to eternal in the song to organize my outline today. Number one, Yahweh is famous for his eternal righteousness. Verses one through four centered around that theme. Number two, Yahweh is famous for his eternal covenant remembrance. He remembers his covenant forever. Verses five through seven a. Number three, Yahweh is famous for his eternal precepts in seven b through nine. And then finally, there's a closing call to worship as well, where Yahweh is famous for, we find his eternal praise. Eternal righteousness, eternal covenant, eternal precepts, eternal praise. Verses 1 through 4. The fame, the renown, Yahweh, the Lord, He is famous for His eternal righteousness. 111.1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work. And his righteousness endures forever. There it is, his eternal righteousness. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now there are four responses in these first four verses to the praiseworthiness of Yahweh. That is to say, in so many words, or summarizing the thought, in light of the Lord's eternal righteousness, he is worthy of our, you could write these in your notes, praise, thanks, study, and remembrance. Because our Lord is gloriously revealed, because of our God's eternal righteousness, because of the forever, the enduring righteousness of our Lord, He is truly worthy of our praise, our thanks, our study, and our remembrance. Praise the Lord, we find in uh, verse 1. This is an opening call to worship, and it's echoed in the close. There's bookends, if you will, in Psalm 111, calling our attention to the glories of the Lord, introducing and signing off with this call to praise. And there's an opening to Psalm 112, similarly, praise the Lord. And the theme of that song continues apace. Psalm 113 echoes a third time. Praise the Lord, triune set of references, calls to worship, because the Lord is worthy of our praise and the glories take more than one song to reveal. Now, this sets up almost a, a, an entire section of the Psalter that is themed around the praise of the Lord. You'll find as we get closer and closer to the end of the collection of Psalms, the theme of the praiseworthiness of the Lord and the overflowing, almost spontaneous reaction, if you will, or fruit of, of beholding the Lord's glory, spilling out in glorious expression or in many expressions of praise to the Lord, they begin to overtake the themes of the Psalms and come to the fore more and more and more. It's as if the whole book of songs is moving to a crescendo, 
all the way up to Psalm 150. And then in this final uh, book, book five of the Psalms, we have section 113 through 118, which historically is called the Hallel, which is Hebrew for praise, I believe, the Hallel Psalms, which were a collection of psalms appropriate for special occasions and feasting and so forth. And they were, a pra- they were a catalog of praise that was utilized by the people of God throughout covenant history all the way into the New Testament. And so what, what compelled this kind of enduring quality? The fact that these songs remain today preserved? The fact that they still ring true with the glorious reality of our Lord? It's because they tap into absolutely profound and eternal realities like the righteousness of our God. And when we consider His righteousness, like Him, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we realize that in this one attribute alone, He is truly worthy of our praise. More so, He is truly worthy of our thanks. That is, our wholehearted recognition of His power. Praise the Lord. Our author says in verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So just to get an idea of the corporate context, imagine yourself back in the day when this psalm was first sung, likely. There would have been tabernacle or temple worship where the horn of announcement would be blown and there would have been a particular days and feasting, the Sabbath or a special occasion a holy time set aside for God's people to set aside their ordinary work and to keep sacred a a segment of their cultural affirmation, to reserve it as an offering to bring to the Lord, to praise Him for His righteousness. So at the sound of that horn announcing, let the assembly gather at the place of God's reunion, the place of God's reconciliation uh, between heaven and earth, the temple or the tabernacle signified as much. Let us come, all who recognize His righteousness endures forever, and offer to Him with our praises, magnifying and exalting Him in this sort of synergistic expression of honor, the glory that He deserves. As our praises mix together in the congregation of the people, there's this sort of glorious momentum that is gained. There's something unique. I I was talking to someone recently, even about group psychology, When you're in a big crowd of people, there's a certain energy that you can't quite divide between everybody and then experience on your daily life. There's something unique about an assembly. And even in the nature of reality, this is evident to some degree, say at a concert. At a concert, everyone is focused. Their attention is on the object which uh, is in front of them, the work, you know, whatever the the, uh, music or Um, the uh, featured artist and and this whole experience. And in this corporate gathering, there's a unique uh, opportunity and potential in the event such that that carries with itself a kind of psychological momentum, a spiritual power to it, and it lifts everybody up a little higher, so to speak, in in the experience than they otherwise would be able to. Well, this is an event, or the Lord himself is the only one truly worthy of that kind of expression. And in the assembly of those who had come and praised, there was opportunity to realize in unique ways in a corporate gathering the power of God and the glory that we would like to offer as a result. Thus, with our whole heart and with the wholehearted throaty roar of those gathered next to us, the people would gather to sing Psalm 111 because the Lord was eternal in His righteousness. And as such, He was worthy of their praise. He is worthy of our praise and thanks. Furthermore, He is worthy of our study. 
In verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, um, each of you, I'm sure, is passionate about something, perhaps a hobby, a pursuit, something that you're particularly delighted in. And as we move through life, these tend to change a little bit, sometimes corresponding to our friend group, our age, our passion, our vocation, or something that we uh, feel good at or what, and whatnot. Well, I've noticed, and I'm sure you have as well, that the information I tend to, retra- tend to retain the best is connected to what I delight in. If I'm really interested in a particular product, I'll do a bunch of research. And it's funny, I don't have to write as much stuff down because I retain it. I'm interested. I'm delighting in the pursuit of this thing. And so acquiring information comes quite naturally. You know, a lot of times people think, well, the Bible is so complicated. And uh, there's so many, you know, and and, uh, you get this idea that, oh, it's over my head and there's no way I could possibly retain it. Well, there is a sense in which the Bible is so profound and deep that a lifetime isn't sufficient to contain it all. But if you want to increase your ability to understand and retain the Bible, ask the Lord to give you a particular delight in who He is. If you truly love the fact that God is righteous, now you'll begin to notice verses that speak to His righteousness, and perhaps you do begin to make a little ledger and to write things down. Pray if your a passion for the Word of God, your desire for Him, your delight in the things that are truly valuable and praiseworthy, if that has waned, pray that the Lord, that His Spirit, would restore to you a sense of delight because then you will become a better student of God's Word. A very simple application. It says here in verse 2 again that great are the works of the Lord. They're objectively awesome. He is objectively holy. You can't deny the greatness of God's works. You can't deny the greatness of Him. After all, it's evidenced by His works. But who are those who studiously dedicate themselves or who understand them at greatest measure? They are the ones who delight in Him and who delight in His works. He is worthy of our praise, our thanks, our study, and finally our remembrance. Verse 4, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. There will never be a generation in this earth, when a testimony of remembrance of the works of God will vanish from the face of humanity. There will never be such a time. Because God has ordained in His glorious purposes to preserve for Himself at least a remnant in every age. Even though it's small at times and from our perspective appears fledgling, think of the days of Noah. Nevertheless, what great works did God accomplish through that one righteous man and his family? Amazing. We talk about them, we delight in them, we study them yet to this day. Why? Because God has decreed that His wondrous works will be remembered through the generations. Now, we have uh, studied aspects of this in the Old Testament, one kind of point of contact or application for the patriarchs and the forefathers in the faith was to build altars. Altars, of course, are associated with this call to remembrance. And then Psalm 78 speaks about a call that I believe applies to every true, generationally faithful believer. And that is to build a culture of remembrance in your relationships, particularly in your home. The God who is worthy of being remembered and who is delighted in by those who have a call to remember Him will proclaim in their education of the next generation His glories, His beauty, His virtue, His power, His attributes, His works, so on and so forth. Why? This is one, because this is a means that God has given us 
that God has ordained that he be remembered. This was commanded of his people in Deuteronomy 6. Read that portion again on your own time in Deuteronomy 11, where God had done marvelous works in delivering his people out of Egypt and then gave specific commands that went right down to the home life and said, now, since the next generation won't cross the Red Sea, they won't be able to wear the t-shirt, I guess you, have, you know, I was there or whatever, they won't be able to carve their name on the rock on the other side after God you know, uh, delivered them as a moment, you know, memento of what they experienced. Nevertheless, the power of remembrance is up to you. It's in the charge of the godly parents to proclaim to the next generation the mighty things God has done. God is truly worthy of our praise, our thanks, our study, and our remembrance. Now, what are the kinds of, th- what are the kinds of things we remember, study, Thank him for and praise. Well, verses 1 through 4, summarized perhaps by eternal righteousness, speak of his transcending glories. This is an, uh, words are used, adjectives are employed, modifiers and descriptors to describe how great and awesome, over and above and high is our Lord. That's what transcendent refers to. That's what surpassing refers to. Look at these adjectives. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty are His works. And of course, His righteousness endures forever. Greatness, they're splendid, majestic, wondrous. These are adjectives that describe the high and holy and awesome power of God. In 1990, uh, I don't know if you were alive then, I was. Many of you in this congregation weren't. Voyager 1 was going way out into space, and I don't know, it probably passed Jupiter as far as, oh yeah, way out there. So Voyager 1, the spacecraft that was designed to look into the distant heavens, at least as far as we could see with the technology at the time, was given instructions to look over its shoulder, as it were, having now traveled six billion kilometers from the earth. And it took one picture in reverse, and there was this kind of shaft of light, maybe just a wash of the distant stars, and if you look real closely, you might have seen this photo. It's a little famous. It's a little bit famous. There's, it's called the pale blue dot. And what, 0.12 pixels, there's a tiny dot in that sort of whitewash of distant stars. Kids, can you guess what that tiny pale blue dot was? It was a planet. Guess which one? Earth. You are correct. So in this, and uh, there was a scientist at the time, as far as I know, an unbeliever, Carl Sagan, likely an atheist, as I recall. He said this, The earth is very small, is a very small stage in a very uh, vast cosmic arena. Commenting on that picture, it was profound to him. And, you know, to that stage, I can agree. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. True so far. The delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, or the delusions that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Is that true? The delusions that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. And this is where I would submit Carl Sagan goes off the rail, off the rails. Are we though? Are we? completely insignificant? Are human beings on this pale blue dot and the cosmic scope of things, are we of no importance to God's purposes in the grand scale? Or is it instead, this is what I submit Psalm 111 teaches, is it instead all the more staggering 
that a God so great would stoop so low to this pale blue dot to reveal himself to mankind. You see, Sagan would have a point if reality was only transcendence. But God is, just, is not just huge in scope. He's also personal and intimate in who he is. And this, second, uh, and this also is recognized in these first four verses. It says, verse 4, He has caused his wondrous works, the vast expanse of, the cosmic, spa- of cosmic space that so we understand just a little bit more than we did prior to existing technology, is testimony to his wondrous works. He has caused his wondrous works, his staggering, unfathomable ability to create a material universe too big for us to imagine to be remembered The Lord is gracious and merciful. That is to say, the God who is splendid, majestic, righteous, eternal, and wondrous is also gracious and merciful. He stooped so low to be born of a woman. As we celebrate at the Advent season, traditionally, in the form of a tiny baby, to the pale blue dot in order to save an unlikely people to the praise of his great name. Don't be surprised. Carl Sagan should know this. He is without excuse. Why? Because the scriptures have illustrated this time and again through God's record of revelation. The God who is so vast in his greatness is proved greater still in that he stooped so low to communicate his truth and love and power to save to you and me. Yes, in the vast expanse and the universal scope of things, we are insignificant if you only judge it by space. But in this, on this pale blue dot, in this vast, unfathomable expanse, if God would privilege us to visit us with his word by his prophets, with his word made flesh, how much more amazing are his attributes. At the table of nations, after the judgment of Babel, God dispersed untold numbers, you know, who would expand into all of the people groups, language groups, and cultures of this earth. And to this day, they're out there in their current form, having adapted over the years to the geography and so forth and all the cultural, you know, influences and whatnot. But from them, he called one man to be a light to them all. His name was Abraham. And we're studying him in our Genesis series. You see a pattern here? In an unlikely way, God chose an unlikely man as a picture of a significant son to come, that he would do great things through unlikely circumstances. And so Yahweh is famous for this. He is famous because his righteousness is eternal, and his righteousness is beyond the scope and design of anything man would come up with. And until the Spirit opens your eyes, it's beyond the scope of what you even consider to be logical or possible. But let your eyes be opened by God's grace and His Spirit through the proclamation of His Word. Our God is eternally righteous, and as such, He is worthy of our praise, our thanks, our study, our remembrance. He is transcendent in His glory, yet He has revealed Himself personally to us. Yahweh is also famous for His eternal covenant remembrance. He remembers His promises forever. Verses 5-7a. through He, Yahweh, provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. Our Lord is famous because He keeps His promises. And again, His fame is only magnified in that His people didn't deserve to have promises because they had failed Him on so many occasions. 
You see here, this is the reference to the Exodus, is it not? You can hear those historical points of contact in reference to food. Here's a question for you kids. In verse 5, the author says, He provides food for those who fear Him. Can you guys remember a time when God provided miraculous food for His people? In the wilderness. And what was that miraculous food called? Manna. Manna. And where did the manna come from? That's right. And it was called the bread of? Oh, ooh, closer. I'll uh, give you a hint. Um, Wings. Angels. Bread of angels, right? Excuse me. So he provides food for those who fear him. This is reference to the miracle of God sustaining his people in the wilderness. The bread of angels, manna from heaven, supernatural sustenance, this was the mark of God's provision during the wilderness wanderings of his people, as the children remind us of this morning. In this, this was evidence, this was proof positive, this was tangible contact. This was God proclaiming through his works of provision that he will keep his promises forever. He's famous for this. Yahweh is famous for remembering his covenant. The people would say, oh, how can I keep walking? My shoes are going to wear out. Where am I going to find food? We're in the middle of a God-forsaken desert. Uh, This is a long journey, and for some reason we keep going in circles. Um, How in the world are God's promises going to be true? Well, if he supernaturally provides for you on your journey from promise to fulfillment, that is the answer. The answer isn't through natural means, but his power revealed in his works. His eternal covenant remembrance. How has God remembered his covenant for us? A principle in scripture often is that God uses pictures to reveal a spiritual truth. And manna is one of those pictures. That idea of food being associated with spiritual realities goes all the way back to the garden. Kids, do you remember the two trees that were in the Garden of Eden? First of all, there was a tree of life. Secondly, there was a tree of? That's right. So depending on the diet, if you will, of Adam and Eve, it made all the difference in the world. Now, what was the good tree, kids? Tree of life. The tree of life reappears in the book of Revelation as the source of healing for the nations. The reconciliation of God's purposes in all of history and for all of his people is symbolized by feeding on food, if you will, that he provides. Manna was a picture of this as well. Just as God provided food, God would provide for his people spiritually, spiritual food. Jesus is called the bread of life. Jesus did miracles of feeding, feeding the 5,000. Why? To demonstrate that he was Yahweh the one who sustains his people in the wilderness. But this physical feeding was not the point of the miracle. After all, when the people followed him, he just said, you follow me because your belly's full. You're not getting the point. What was he saying? He is the bread of life. And what do we celebrate here at the Lord's table on communion Sundays? We celebrate that Jesus sustains us through his very body and blood, broken and spilled for us. That is to say, spiritually speaking, it is It is His work on Calvary that sustains us in the wilderness of our sin, that brings us newness of life, and that carries us forward into glory. So all these pictures are associated with food. God provides food for those who fear Him. Manna in the wilderness, the tree of life regained or access regained through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, uh, provisionally and symbolically at His table through the broken body pictured in the bread and through the cup which represents his blood, testifying to his power, his miracles when he came and so forth. This is the God who is made famous by providing food for his people, that is, spiritual resources, sustaining them unto eternal life. 
A second picture, inheritance. His eternal covenant remembrance is demonstrated by providing food, but also an inheritance. Verse 6, He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. So recently we studied how the Jericho spies snuck in through Rahab's place to, to, you know, case out the joint to see how they could overthrow Jericho. Well, the answer came in God's supernatural power, did it not? Jericho wasn't going to be defeated by a ragtag band of freed slaves with nothing but a trumpet to boast between them. There was going to have to be something else, a divine intervention. And so God's word came, and by a declaration of his power and majesty and supernatural intervention and in the felling of the walls of Jericho, he gave them the inheritance of the nations. And he did this through a series of miraculous events. And this was to show that God, against all odds, by man's judgment and probability calculation, God will remember his covenant. Yahweh is famous for this. Tell your children how God is famous for keeping his promises. Though people doubted him in the wilderness, he gave them the land. Though it was surrounded and fortified by cities too high to even imagine these days, nevertheless, they crumbled before his conquering glory. The Lord does these kinds of things. This inheritance was prophesied. You can study this later. We've covered it you know, in past sermons. Genesis 15, 13 through 16. God tells Abraham himself, he says that your people are going to be slaves for 400 you know, plus years, but I will deliver you and give you uh, rewards from Egypt, basically, and then I will deliver you into the promised land when the fullness of the Amorites is complete, and then the land will be yours. Here is illustrated a pretty incredible principle. And both times in the context of conflict, God's judgments came, destroyed a wicked people, and then served to give an inheritance into the people of God. Now I mention this because I think there is a principle application to our day. I don't know if you've lamented this week, but I've certainly struggled. I even asked, called a couple brothers for prayer from time to time. Because why? Well, I feel with the political fallout and the fraying edges, if not the whole fabric, of our society right now, it feels like we're losing our cultural, political inheritance as an American Christian. As an American Christian, it feels to me, politically speaking, if I just listen to the news, that I am losing my cultural and political inheritance. I'm sure you can relate. Here's something to encourage you. When it comes to the covenant of God, you never lose your inheritance. And in the context of great conflict, God will sometimes despoil the wicked and actually accomplish his promises through times of judgment and upheaval. How might this happen in our land? Well, as days grow increasingly dark, as the idols continue to topple, as man's misplaced hopes continue to fail them, the opportunity for a field ripening unto harvest, for the gospel and only hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, perhaps will increase. If we can add to our numbers, church, if we can add to our numbers in days of darkness, when judgment and discipline from a holy God comes upon a wicked land, we are adding into our spiritual inheritance more who will join us on that final day. And as more and more people repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we even have provisionally hope for cultural reform in the meantime as well. And this is a message of encouragement to you because God will give us in due course our inheritance. And though it seems like all is lost, it's in moments like these that God is famous for miraculously defying the odds. Let us pray that he would do so in our day.
His eternal covenant remembrance is pictured in this, first por- or in this portion here as his handiwork or the works of his hands. Notice verse 7a. The works of his hands are faithful and just. When we uh, hear these, the technical term is anthropomorphic. So it's assigning as a picture something of human capacity like a hand to God to help us understand him. God doesn't literally have hands, but God literally works in history. God doesn't literally have hands like you and I, but God literally works in history. And that's the message. Don't forget it. Don't forget this. God is holy and awesome, and he is famous for literally working in history. And when he tears nations down by his judgments, that's the work of his hands. And when he fills up the coffers of his people with a reaping and a reward of souls through the proclamation of the gospel and obedience to the Great Commission, that is the work of his hands. And as he continues to proclaim his law and his government through the sanctified growth of a church that is taking seriously his precepts and that begins to have an effect on the world around us, that also is the work of his hands. And he is famous for this. Number three, Yahweh is famous for his eternal righteousness, his eternal covenant remembrance. Number three, his eternal precepts. Verses 7b uh, through 9. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. That's our eternal reference. So here's our third reference to something eternal. His eternal precepts, his, are his precepts are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. There's another reference to the eternality of his covenant. The Yahweh is famous for his eternal precepts. Well, what are precepts? Well, we kind of go from this category of the work of God's hands, his tangible acts in history, to the conceptual, if you will, the truths, the concepts, the principles, the law, the dictates, the propositional word of God, to use a few things to describe it. There are certain things that never change, that accord with reality because God has made it that way, that are recorded in his scripture that provide the benchmark, the foundation, the reference point for understanding who he is, who we are, and therefore how to live. And these are called God's precepts, and they're uh, called many different things in Scripture. Other names, well, there's a ton in Psalm 119. Precepts, law, commandments, dictates, principles, and it goes on and on. What this means, or what is emphasized here, is that there are points of unwavering, unshakable truth that allow us to get our bearings no matter what day in which we live. And that's a great application for now. So I was in a conversation this week with someone who, let's just say, doesn't share my worldview. And they described it as a good thing that America is embracing a more progressive point of view. Oh, we are becoming much more tolerant of all these different people, uh, sexualities, genders, and so forth that want to get married. Uh, Now, sometimes I hold my tongue perhaps a little too much. Maybe sometimes I wisely hold my tongue. But I'll tell you what always happens is when I'm in these conversations, I think about it a lot later. And then, you know, it's like you're writing letters in your head of the things you should have said. I think that's a phrase from a song. And so that's what I did. I thought back on that conversation. And and it occurred to me, I was listening to the news, and California is moving. I'm not sure in what capacity. You have to research this on your own. California is moving in some capacity right now as far as the state is concerned, to deem biological realities of what makes a female a female as congenital abnormalities, 
for the purposes of assigning state funding for gender reassignment surgery, and many advocates are wanting to this, this to be without respect to age or at a very young age, etc. In other words, what it means objectively to be a man or to be a woman in a quote-unquote progressive society is now, being is now being decreed by those who are usurping through their false precepts God's natural order as a congenital abnormality to be adjusted under the surgeon's knife. No, under the maimer's knife, under one who would physically alter an individual because of a convoluted idea in their head. Do you see how absurd, how wicked, and how self-destructive a culture can get where we physically mutilate the beautiful orientation of the way God has made us because we don't tie ourselves to his precepts, his truth, his righteousness, the things that he has ordained. God has said by creative right, I have ordained man and woman. And this is a point that we will have to emphasize to our unbelieving, our deceived neighbors, and sometimes even the confessing church. These are precepts that are not up for review. We boycott them, we violate them, we alter them at our own peril. But isn't it reassuring against the opposite, or, you know, and, and we see it contrasted against the opposite, that the conceptual truths, that the reference points of reality, that the foundation of the order of creation is unchanging? Progressivism stinks. It is rebellion against the Lord. It is nothing new and it has no end. It has no foundation. No point of reference. Another way you could put it, an argument is there are no absolutes and there are no ethics on progressivism. It has no grounds. Because progress or just moving towards some arbitrary goal, if that's our new standard, there is no assurance that anything is off the table. Not so in God's world. And you will prove as much by your own judgment or you will repent and go back to the reassuring testimony of Scripture which will allow you to glorify Him and to flourish and to offer truth in an age of confusion. Yahweh is famous because His eternal precepts will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that bright light will shine all the brighter, all the more glorious in a day where this is denied. And the absurdity of the contrary will be more evident as we begin to slide down this Sodom-like trajectory. Pray that God reverses it by the church standing on the truth that our Lord is famous because His Word endures. He is perfectly wise and He should be feared. And more than this, not only has He established these things forever, but He has sent redemption to His people. The Lord knows that inasmuch as we are all born in sin, we live a portion of our lives not abiding by His precepts, but proving ourselves the fool when we make our own way. Yet God is famous not just for establishing eternal precepts that show that we are in sin, but establishing eternal terms for us to be reconciled to Him. And herein is a hope of the gospel, is it not? Here's the gospel in Psalm 111, verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He commanded His covenant forever. So on the one side we have precepts which judge us falling short of the glory of God. Over here we have covenant, which is relationship with Him. What connects precepts, the law of God, to covenant, restoration of relationship? Redemption in the middle. And this is the way the scriptures ordered, or, or these two scriptures are ordered. He established his precepts forever, proclaiming his inarguable truth and law. He sent redemption to restore us unto himself, and in redemption he commanded his covenant. 
That is, he established our relationship with him forever. This is the gospel. How, had God sent it, how has God sent his redemption? God sent his redemption in the form of his word through his prophets of old. And here in Psalm 111, we're reading the eternal precepts of a holy God recorded for our benefit thousands of years later. God sent his redemption in his word made flesh. As we've celebrated recently, Jesus Christ actually providing for us access to the Father in becoming the second Adam, taking on flesh, dying in our place, satisfying the punishment that our sin deserved, transferring by imputation his righteousness to us where God deems us holy so that we can be in covenant with the one who is holy and awesome. Yahweh is famous for this. These are his eternal precepts. They're not just conceptual truths, but they become written on our hearts through the redemptive work, and thus we become his covenant people. What was the prophecy of old? In that day I will write my law on their hearts. What does the author of Hebrews say? No longer will you need a priesthood as you once had it, where a neighbor needs to intercede for a neighbor. No, there will be one priest, holy and sufficient, awesome in his power and sacrifice and in his intercession. And in Jesus Christ, the covenant is fulfilled and the law moves from a precept that condemns us to a delight that we love. Now the law, the precepts of God, are in the verse 2 category. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. If you want to read ahead, go to Psalm 119, and you will find the longest chapter in Scripture centered around delight in the laws, the precepts, the commandments, the objective truths of our God. Do we share that author's affections? If not, pray that in redemption and sanctification, the Lord would write His law on your heart. Final point this morning. Yahweh is famous not only for His eternal righteousness, His eternal covenant remembrance, His eternal precepts, but for His eternal praise. He gleans for Himself eternal praise from His people. If you're a true believer in this room, you're never going to die. But uh, ultimately speaking, you will die physically speaking, but you will be raised again. What are you going to do after that? What are you going to do after you are raised from the dead? Well, the scriptures give us a window into the glorious purposes of our eternal future. And the praise that we stumble and mutter and have just a glimpse and, a, and, you know, and faltering on our lips and in our hearts, even as we experience more of Christ's glory through sanctification, this faltering, these faltering footsteps of praise that is offered to the Lord that he deserves will give way to a glorious, cacophonous megaphone of a multitude like the sound of many waters, lifting praise in perfection, precision, and clarity, and power forever and ever. Um, on my better days, I ask the Lord for a powerful voice because I want to sing as loud as I can and never lose my voice. I don't have that strong a voice. And sometimes I kind of covet my buddies who don't even need a microphone to preach. But, oh, that's awesome. There's something viscerally connected to this desire that the Lord would but give us a voice that would be clear and powerful and consistent and far more valuable than a voice that doesn't give out because of the decibel level. Far more powerful than that is a voice that is consistently affirming the Lord in all of life because he has given us a deeper delight in his precepts. And this is real praise. This is real worship. This is legitimate God-honoring, pointing to him as the glorious king. These are the things that you walk in, or this is the calling that you walk in when you study something in your morning time in the Bible, and you call a friend and say, 
hey, I just think I figured something out. Or have you ever thought about this verse in this way? I'd encourage you just to take a simple step like that and see if it doesn't grow within you or water the seeds of delight in the Lord's word. As you do so, you will join the voices, the perfect voices of glory one day with your perfecting voice now, giving him the praise that he deserves. Verse 10 summarizes our calling this way. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, when you think of praise, uh, you might just limit your initial understanding or concept to the kind of songs you hear on Christian radio. But when the Bible speaks of praise, the vision is much more comprehensive. And the author tells us where true praise begins. It begins with the fear of the Lord, a holy, reverential respect for he who is above all, that has the power to judge in his perfection and the power to redeem in his only begotten Son. When that thought compels us, when we look at that picture of space that, you know, that I mentioned before and see how insignificant we are on this pale blue dot, and then we imagine, I was doing this yesterday, holding little uh, Hugo, our latest little one, and looking into his eyes and imagining my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a baby just like that one day and being blown away that this was the means that God used to save me and letting that try to sink into my soul. As you do that kind of thing, as we do that kind of thing, as we behold the Lord, as we fear him, as we hold him in high esteem, as we take seriously his holiness and his awesomeness, if you will, the theme of Psalm 111, then that is where true praise, that's the well from which true praise begins to spring. And it's not just a song and it's not just a schedule and it's not just a radio station. It can incorporate these things, of course, but it is far more. It is the first principle that we hold of reality. In other words, to fear the Lord is to recognize that he is the foundation of everything, that he is the beginning of wisdom. The lie in the garden was this, you are the beginning of wisdom. Man is the measure of all things, the ancient you know, classical philosophers might say. After all, where can we reach beyond ourselves? Ultimately, that which we know for certain is within ourselves. This is a poisonous lie from the garden. The devil said to Adam and Eve that you can be the foundation for knowledge. You can be the beginning of wisdom. No, the ultimate reality of Adam and Eve's experience in the Garden of Eden is that they owed their existence their allegiance, their faithfulness, their continuing sustenance, the breath in their lungs, the next beat of their heart, their cellular generation processes to the God that made them in the first place. Therefore, he is the author and finisher of all things, the foundation in philosophy. It's called the Principium, which I think is Latin for first principles. The foundation of all things is the fear of the Lord. Um, what book in the Bible has this theme? Somebody want to shout it out? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the theme of what book in the Bible? It's a wisdom book. Somebody want to shout it out? Proverbs is correct. Proverbs 1.7 uh, quotes this verbatim, or echoes this verbatim. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do we live in a society that holds this to be true? That honoring the Lord Almighty is the starting place for the understanding of all things? Certainly not. So what would discernment do? 
the exercise of discerning good and evil that we are called to do according to Hebrews 5 would recognize where people are using other foundations, other starting points, other points of reference than the fear of the Lord for their understanding of things, to reject them and your own understanding and confession to replace them with the Lord. And this can only happen if you delight in Him and if you begin to praise Him and the fruit of the reality of Scripture begins to bloom in your life from your thinking to your confession to your actions. He is foundational. And as such, He is sufficient. Not only is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom, but this promise attends. And as we continue to read 10, verse 10, all those who practice it have a good understanding. Have you ever watched the news and listened to people? I've done this before in recent days. You know, to my shame, I've done it even more. But sometimes I think, I've got to figure out this scenario that we're going through. So I'm going to listen to a podcast. Well, I don't really trust that that comprehensively describes or it gets all the points. So I'll listen to another. There's been some things I've tried to figure out where I listen to 10 or 12 podcasts in a row. And by the time I'm done, I'm not sure I'm even closer to understanding the issue than when I started. And what am I doing? I'm chasing rabbit trails. What I need to do is instead of investing understanding in the means of man, I need to realize that understanding begins with the fear of God. Better to spend all that time in Scripture and then listen with the sermon than try to get my bearings the, uh, through this you know, path of futility. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who practice it have a good understanding. And of course, it's eternal in scope, which brings up our theme, our main adjective, eternal or foreverness. The uh, praise of the Lord is eternal. His praise endures forever. The Lord is famous for this. Yahweh is famous. He is holy and awesome, and He is proclaimed as holy and awesome by His people, though they are sometimes a smaller remnant than we would wish, forever and ever. And He is never without a voice of praise from His people. So I encourage you this day to recognize this. Then that we would, and perhaps in closing... Now, let us take these words seriously in Psalm 111 and pray that God would give us a real understanding and delight of His righteousness, His covenant, and His precepts that we might join these with appropriate praise. His praise endures when the foolish confusion of last week's news cycles fades into the distant memory and is filed in the dumpster of humanistic absurdity. His praise yet continues. Those who announce that Jesus Christ is Lord, their voice will continue clearly, righteously, and accurately when all other hopes have failed us. His righteousness is eternal. His covenant is everlasting. His precepts are established forever, and His praise endures forevermore. And get this, saints, so will those who praise Him in spirit and in truth. His praise endures forevermore, and so will those who praise Him in spirit, and in truth. So in closing of this message, if you are a believer in this room, I beg you, heed the commandment of Psalm 111, Psalm 112, and Psalm 113. Look to the fear of the Lord, delight in Him, and saints, let us, whatever the Lord brings our way by way of circumstance in the era in which we live, let us nevertheless praise the Lord. Amen? Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of your scripture, which returns our sometimes frayed, worried, anxious, distracted, heavily burdened souls, which returns us, Lord, to the point of contact with that which is eternal, unwavering, and will endure no matter what assails it. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, our weapons are superior. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors 
because we are tied to that which will outlast life itself. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we have access through his word to that which will bring clarity, correction, conviction, repentance, and truth into a world that is dying and, be in, and falling under judgment for lack of understanding who you are and what you have ordained. I pray in light of this, Lord, that you would quicken the voice and the confession and the a commitment of your people that we might be bold to proclaim your fame and your renown, to joyfully declare that you are famous for your righteousness, for your covenant, for your precepts, and that your praise will endure for all generations. Lord, for those that are in you today, we thank you that this message resonates with us because you have awakened our heart to the truth of Christ who died for sinners. If there are any in the hearing of this message, these words do not apply in the same way because they're yet lost in their sin. I pray that they would take the first step in fearing you. In so doing, they would repent of falling short of your precepts. and They would cling to Christ's come for their redemption. And that in this, Lord, in the conversion of their heart and the regeneration of their soul, that they would be forever bound to you in covenant and join us in the glorious calling of making your name great, even in the day in which we live and ever more so as the day approaches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.